This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We are in storm mode at CBS 46 in preparation what could be a very active evening with tornadoes and strong damaging winds across North Georgia. Already seeing some very heavy downpours making their way through North Georgia. There was a bad weather approaching through Atlanta at the time. Uh, Officer uh, Reddy and Sergeant Stone and I were sitting up on Main Street in Buford right above the gym and around 8 20-ish, we uh, decided, all three of us, to go to the fire station to hold up while the uh, while the tornadoes passed by. We got there around 8.30. The rain had started picking up, and it got real heavy and bad. And then uh, we just, it's very, very ordinary and plain. We just sort of just sat around and watched the TV. We were watching broadcast, local broadcast, so we could catch up with the weather map, the local weather map. Everything was just just vanilla until about uh, 10 o'clock. My normal routine at 10 o'clock was to, uh, that's when the gym closed. Wherever I was at, whatever I was doing, I would sort of head that way to meet up with uh, Van Parker, who was my, like my night employee and pick up the day's receipts and then go on about my business. Well, this night I was getting ready to get to go back out. It was just a little bit of the movie we had been watching on television had gone off five minutes till the hour, 10 o'clock. When a radio call to dispatch me to a no-nothing disturbance call, kids fighting on the basketball court earlier in the day. Mama was mad and wanted to complain about it. But it was, it was in the opposite direction of the crime scene, the other side of town. I was getting dressed in my rain suit, standing underneath the uh, radio dispatch for the fire department. And Sergeant Stone was standing there with me, just watching. But I left the fire station about two or three minutes till 10. I drove, again, opposite from the crime scene, going the other direction. It was raining hard. I do remember pulling up under my little overhang so I wouldn't get wet when I got out of the car. And I shot up in the uh, lobby. Van was there with his then girlfriend. They were watching a movie on the VCR. Shows you how dated this story is. I said hey to him. They said hey. He threw me my bank bag and out the door I went. Back in my car and continue my journey on into the Pebble Brook subdivision where I think we've determined I arrived somewhere 10 minutes after to 11 minutes after according to the radio traffic logs. I had to ask radio to confirm the house numbers. That's it. I was there. That's the whole extent of my exciting night is uh, hiding out from the tornado at the fire department. When linguistics expert Bill Weston reviewed the interrogation of Mike Chappell, there was one thing that stood out to him. He said it was the lack of Chapel's experiential memory when talking about his stop by Iron World after receiving a dispatch call at Firehouse 14 at 9.56 p.m. the night of Emma Jean Thompson's murder. Weston expected Chapel to have more sensory associated with that memory, the kind you just heard. 
It was raining hard. I stood under the overhang to stay dry. Van Parker and his girlfriend were watching a movie on the VCR. Weston emphasized that that doesn't mean Chapel was lying about these events during the interrogation, but he told me it is what he calls sensitivity in his statements and should have been looked at more closely. But Chapel could have just as well changed his version of the story today to make it more real and experiential and to fit his narrative, though he was unaware of my conversation with Bill Weston at the time of these statements. Bill Weston, however, wasn't aware that there were witnesses who verified seeing Chapel at Ironworld around 10 p.m. on the night of April 15th. The timing of this stop into the gym is crucial because it takes place during the window of death provided by the medical examiner. If Chapel is to prove his innocence, he needs to account for every minute of that window of time. His former employee, Van Parker, didn't have a statement taken by police until nearly two and a half years after the murder. And when he was finally questioned, he couldn't recall the exact time Chapel arrived. His girlfriend was never contacted. But one member of Ironworld who was present that night, fortunately, had a better memory. It's probably about 8, 30, 9 o'clock when I finally left the shop. I was working for Buford Auto Plaza then. Dana Blunt was finishing up her workout at Iron World that night at the same time Chapel stopped by to quickly pick up the day's receipts on his way to the non-emergency call. It was getting really bad outside and it was storming, like tornadoes. He told me I wasn't going, he said, you, you're not going to leave till you call and tell David you're on your way to make sure you make it home. Because he said, Dana, it's getting really bad out there. And then he was aggravating me a little bit about how I was doing some kind of exercise. And, but it, I mean, it was normal. He, the, the man was normal. It wasn't anything that was any different. And that's what just blowed me away because I knew Mike long enough and I know him well enough where if that something like that had happened, he wouldn't have been acting normal. Mike was a good person, he really was. Although a little foggy on her times all these years later, Henry obtained her original signed affidavit stating that Chapel arrived at 10 p.m. or a few minutes after and told her to call her husband because of the foul weather. Her husband, David, also signed a separate affidavit confirming this. Dana also shares something else with me. Shortly after Chapel's arrest, she was at a get-together with several other people at the home of her brother-in-law. Michael Thompson was also there, and the group's discussion had turned to Chapel. And the day that Michael Thompson told me and a couple more people said that he knew Mike Chapel didn't do that. I looked at him, you know, kind of strange, and the guy standing there saying that Mike Chappell didn't do that, but Mike Chappell's sitting in prison or in jail being tried for that lady's murder. And her own son said he didn't do it. I'm Sean Kite from Imperative Entertainment. This is In the Land of Lies. At this point, I've heard and read a lot about Michael Thompson and Amy Parker. Yeah, I can't even believe that you got a hold of my number and located me. Parker alone provided Michael Thompson's alibi, though the statements they each gave police don't exactly line up as one would expect, seeing as those statements were given the day following the murder. I needed to know why those stories didn't match and what the real truth is. 
there are only two people who can clarify what happened. All right, well, my name is Amy Parker, and I actually used to live right next door to the Thompsons. Amy Parker was a regular in the Thompson household. Living in the trailer next door, she knew Michael and Imogene for years and had gone to school with Michael, who she remains close friends with to this day. She tells me about Imogene, who, sadly, I know very little about beyond the night of the murder. She was beautiful inside and out. She was a person that if she had a dollar, she'd give you 99 cents of it. She would give you the own shirt off her back. If you knocked on her door and you were hungry, she would invite you in to eat. She was one of the most beautiful women I had ever known inside and out. Amy also tells me about Mike Chappell. Did you know Mike Chappell? Yes, I did. Um, he actually was one of the police officers that worked the backside of Buford. At the time, I was trying to get, of course, I was younger then, a lot younger, and I was trying to get into law enforcement. And Michael Chapel actually was trying to help me go through what I needed to go through to become an officer. But once all this happened, no longer did I want to be a police officer. But yeah, I had known Mike because he was very, he was really involved with the community in Buford. Everybody knew him. I liked him. I really did. It surprised me that this happened. He was really involved. Like I said, he was involved in the community. He had his gym there. So a lot of people would go to his gym and work out and see him. And he really, he put his face out there, a well-known cop that did a lot for the community. Hearing that Amy Parker knew Mike Chappell for years and that he was helping her with her ambitions of getting into law enforcement surprised me. Though Chappell was known to have helped several people in the same way. I asked him if there was any truth to this. <laughs> really? Well, that's interesting. That's uh, first I've heard of that. I knew of her, seen her around. Let's just say she had encounters with police officers, but it wasn't the good kind. I want to say she came into the gym sometime, but I don't remember when, but that was not odd. She never joined, but uh, that was not odd because sooner or later everybody came in just out of curiosity or whatever. Mike told me that he and numerous other officers had responded on two separate occasions to aggravated domestic calls involving Amy Parker. But no reports were ever filed by any of the officers because no one wanted to press charges. When I spoke with Amy, she was on her lunch break at work. So I got right to the point with my questions. When I asked her about Michael Thompson's whereabouts on the night of his mother's murder, she surprises me with her version of events. The very night that this happened, Michael and I was going out clubbing. So we were there at his house getting ready. Mike Chapel called on the telephone to Emma Jean and had it on speakerphone. I think I found your $7,000, but I need you to bring the other $7,000 so we can match up bills on the serial numbers. And then asked her to meet him at Gwenco Muffler I sat there, Mike and myself, both of us, right along with Emma Jean. So you were there 
you and Michael and Imogene were there in Imogene's trailer and you heard that call. Yes. And then after that phone call, Mike and I, we had left to go to the club. She was getting ready for work. She finished getting ready to work and she left. And that was the last time we had ever spoke to her. This is completely different than anything I'd heard before. Phone records did not show any calls to or from Mike Chappell to Imogene's home that night. In fact, the only time Chappell called Imogene was on the day after the initial robbery. I've even seen the handwritten affidavit given to police and signed by Amy that states the same alibi we discussed in the previous episode. A statement that Amy doesn't remember giving. No, I don't remember none of that because Mike was next door with me in my house. And then we went over to his house to get ready. So honestly, whoever took that report, that's incorrect. And when she says Mike here, she's referring to Michael Thompson. Mike was with me the whole night at a strip club. We were at the Cornet Club. We probably left the house at about 930 because it was right before she left to go to work. And she worked the midnight shift. And we didn't get back in till 3 a.m. Before our call ends, Amy leaves me with one final thought. That Imogene Thompson wasn't the only victim that night. Mike's gotten on with his life. It's been very hard for him. Because ever since this happened, he has not been the same person. By no means. This has ruined his world. And after this... He had only existed. He has not lived. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. After speaking with Amy Parker, I was left confused. She had given me a story regarding her and Michael Thompson's actions that night that I hadn't heard before. So the other person I needed to speak with was, of course, Michael Thompson. I now had three different versions of his whereabouts the night of his mother's murder. With a little luck and a lot of digging, I found him. I'm Michael Thompson. My mother is the one that was killed by my chapel. She was just, I guess, just a good mom. I mean, she, uh, she would have given her the shirt off her back if you needed it. I mean, if you needed anything, all you had to do was just ask, you know, she would just give it to you. And It was a rainy, gloomy Saturday morning that I drove two hours northeast of Atlanta to meet with Michael. He was hard to find. He's moved around a lot in the past 29 years, crashing here and there for a few months at a time and then moving on, like a vagabond. He now lives with several housemates in a trailer similar to the one he lived in in 1993. He lights a cigarette and begins to tell me his story. The night that she died, we went to the Waffle House, had supper, and we 
left and got home about 9.30 and I had left to go down the street to my friend's house because a friend of there was supposed to be coming over to talk to me about a job and they never showed up. You know, so I sat there at their house for, well, I didn't stay there long. I guess I stayed about 30 minutes there at their house and I waited for them to, you know, come over, but they never showed up. So I walked back over to my neighbors and me and her uh, was just sitting there talking and uh, she said that my mom left about a quarter to 10 to go to work. And so I was about midnight, I went, home and went, you know, laid down, got, went to bed and everything. What Michael Thompson tells me sounds more consistent with the statements he gave 29 years ago. But today, there was no mention of spending all night at a strip club, as I'd heard from Amy. No, we didn't go out that night, no. She was at home, I was at home. We didn't leave her house, you know. When I got to her house, I was there a couple hours and I went home to my house. I then asked Michael, about the phone call from Chapel that came in while Emma Jean, he, and Amy were all present. The phone call where Chapel had asked to meet the same evening to compare serial numbers on the money. No, I was, I wasn't there when he called her. Amy was at home and I was down the street. Again, these stories just don't line up. So what's the truth? The only sure things I seem to have gotten out of talking to Amy and Michael is that Emma Jean Thompson was a kind, sweet woman who did not deserve for her life to end the way it did. She deserved better. And I learned that Michael Thompson is sure that Chapel is right where he belongs, in prison. I have no doubt in my mind that I'm sure it was him that done it. It feels like just a small period of time, but now it's it's been 29 years since she's been gone and it just seems like i've had a long long hard rough life just because it was just me and my mom when she died you know so i guess i just got put out in the wind somewhere and i'm just still just dangling you know what i mean Regardless of the conflicting statements given to police by Michael Thompson and Amy Parker, the statements given by numerous men at Firehouse 14 confirming Chapel was there at the time of Emma Jean Thompson's death, the eyewitnesses placing Chapel at Iron World Gym at 10 p.m., and the unusual manner in which the interrogation by investigators Laddie and Burnett were conducted, Chapel was placed under arrest for murder on April 23rd. 1993. For the next two and a half years, he would be confined to a cell at neighboring Hall County Jail while awaiting trial as Gwinnett County Police and District Attorney Danny Porter built their case against him. He couldn't be housed in Gwinnett County's jail system because they feared for his safety due to the high number of inmates Chapel had arrested and sent there. He was only moved back to Gwinnett County shortly before the trial began. Chapel tells me what that two and a half years was like for him, waiting for his chance to prove his innocence in court. You sit there and you're trying to find explanations and find out what's really going on. And the, the natural instinct was to investigate, investigate, 
corroborate and verify and solve this. That's what was killing me. I was waiting to get to trial and everything was in delay for this reason and that reason. And then being held in the uh, isolation unit down there, like being a snake handler and falling into the snake pit, because this is, you know, this is where I used to bring people, right? But just the sheer frustration of not being able to, uh, you know, get out there and, and, and figure this out, how it, was, how it was really going down. And having to rely on these people to tell me things, do things, and being drug out. And getting drug out in the court and listen to their delay, delay, delay. Very frustrating time, very frustrating time. They set a $500,000 bond. Um, there then became some, um, I guess I'll just say extrajudicial stipulations. The money had to be raised within Gwinnett County. You, they wouldn't allow any property to be used that wasn't in Gwinnett County. They just, they basically made it impossible for him to be bonded out. And uh, it made it impossible for him to really have any role in investigating the case that was now being made against him. They actually put rules in place that limited his ability to talk to other deputies or officers. His brother and his father were actually Gwinnett County Sheriff's deputies, and they were specifically prohibited from communicating with him while he was at the Gwinnett County Jail. And so they they really made it very difficult for Mike to in any meaningful way participate in his defense. Yeah, the, the bond issue was uh, really aggravating because, what, and God bless them, I love every one of them. When this happened, I found out through the deputies that would talk that uh, hundreds of people wanted to make my bond or come down and put, put up their little properties on bond. I remember one deputy come and told me about this uh, elderly black couple. I knew I knew of them from the from my beat, and they brought their uh, deed down. They had like one thirteenth of an acre, you know, just a couple of hundred dollars. But they wanted to put it on their put it on my bond because I had helped their grandson out of a jam. You know, and that just uh, that just you know that made me feel real real good about my people up there. They kept changing the game, changing the rules. But uh, they wanted to make sure I was never going to get out. Aside from the multitude of stipulations aimed at making it impossible for Chapel to get out of jail before his trial began, his treatment while at the Gwinnett County Jail raised eyebrows and caused concern from some staff members. I'm Jenny Foxworth. I was a nurse at the Gwinnett County Detention Center. I had worked with Mike many times when he would bring people he had arrested. We had to do an intake on everybody that came in the door. So you deal with a lot of different people. And Mike Chapel was um, one of the most laid back, calmest, gentle giants I have ever met. As a nurse, when they said Mike Chapel is being arrested and he's coming in and we're going to put him in J-Pod. J-Pod was the maximum security pod. We were all taken aside and um, told, you do not give him Tylenol. And I was like, 
I'm not a person easily. Um, I believe in taking care of anybody. You can buy Tylenol by the way from Storcall or ibuprofen. But Mike, he didn't have access to that. And we were told we can't give him Tylenol because he could save them up and that he could kill himself with 10 Tylenol. You can't give him any Benadryl. If he's itching or if he has scabies from someone or if he has something, you cannot give him anything. And if he's running a fever or had a cold, we weren't supposed to give him any cough drops because he could try to kill himself, choke himself on that. Um, He could take the paper and try to kill himself because that paper's hard to tear. A pill that has, if it's prescribed by the doctor, make sure that you tear off all the uh, metal, like on a chewing gum wrapper, you know how it's got the little tin stuff, because he could stick that in a an outlet and kill himself. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Jenny tells me that this treatment went far beyond any kind of normal safety protocol she'd ever witnessed in her 42 years as a nurse, especially because Chapel was not suicidal. It was just cruelty. I knew they were withholding things from him, even food. They were not feeding him the amount they fed others. I mean, he wasn't allowed to buy a book. He wasn't allowed to have... It was just a very sad situation. And I felt it was mistreatment of this man who happened to be one of our own, really. But they wanted me to treat him less than anybody else that had even been convicted and was there in of serial killing or killing a child, their own child. They wanted him to have less than that. They did not want any nurses to have any involvement because he's going to kill you. He's going to kill you. And I knew it in my heart. I am not going to treat mistreat anyone. And I felt this was very, very much mistreating. But I gave him Tylenol. I gave him Benadryl, and I could get fired for doing that. I was told I would be fired. And I didn't care because I was doing the right thing. I know God would take care of it. One thing immediately became perfectly clear to Chapel. If he had any chance of proving his innocence in court, he was going to need one hell of a lawyer. Someone gritty and not afraid of the seemingly insurmountable odds that lay before him. Well-known Gwinnett County defense attorney Walt Britt was perfect for his case, and Chapel immediately retained him. But shortly before the trial began in the fall of 1995, Walt Britt would be removed from Chapel's defense team by Judge Fred Bishop, who presided over the trial. The decision would come after constant requests by the prosecution, namely District Attorney Danny Porter, who had now become Chapel's biggest detractor, citing a conflict of interest. Henry explains. Walt Britt, in addition to being known to represent police officers, you know, in legal matters, also represented the county in different issues, typically not related to the police department. 
and it was brought up that, you know, hey, is this a conflict of interest? The judge didn't feel like it was. And before Mike's case, that had never been a problem. But they, you know, they went back to the judge and basically asked the judge to conflict him out. Ultimately, they they did so. But Henry believes the real reason why attorney Walt Britt was conflicted out was because of the information he had been obtaining through a private investigator he hired. Walt Britt visited Mike at the Hall County Jail, May 6th, 7th, 8th. When Walt Britt came into the jail, he spoke to the jail commander, Jim Ash, confirmed that, you know, hey, I'm going to have a privileged conversation with my client. And Jim Ash agreed that there was nobody standing behind the two-way mirror and the, you know, the microphones aren't on, so nobody's listening to your conversation. Walt Britt identified to Mike that he was hearing from confidential sources that J.P. Morgan was setting Mike up, that somehow J.P. Morgan was involved in this frame-up. If you'll remember, I told you that Mike Chappell had begun hearing about bad behavior regarding police officers in the precinct from his own informants. Officer John Philip Morgan, who went by J.P., was one of the names that came up frequently. And Chapel was hearing that Morgan was working hand-in-hand with high-profile drug dealers. But I am skeptical of informants that I have no way to verify. I'd actually seen Morgan's name on a uh, gambling ticket put out by a local drug dealer. My informants were always talking about him uh, shaking down drug dealers and whatnot. They were afraid of him because uh, he was working for at least two, two different groups that I know of. And they were known drug dealers, and they were telling me he was uh, shaking down the uh, buyers that would buy the dope, take the dope, take the money, and give the dope back to the dealers. That's what we were hearing and working on at the time. On one occasion, Chapel says he walked into Captain Cantrell's office at headquarters, where he'd begun storing his private intel files for safekeeping, and found Morgan rifling through them. So, now that Walt Britt was sniffing in Morgan's direction, Chapel gave him everything he had. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was the whole crux of the meeting there. Walt, as soon as he got the all clear and Jim left, Walt said, uh, could J.P. Morgan have set you up? And I went on to tell him, well, we weren't the best of friends and for the reasons why. I thought he was dirty and was uh, had the proof and all this and all that. Told him about the experiences of him uh, dealing information to drug dealers. And I asked him, I said, where where you get this from? He said that a little bird told him. That was as, that was as descriptive as he ever got to it to this day with me. Walt Britt wouldn't give up his source's name to anyone and would end up spending 72 hours in the same jail Chapel was held in for taking a harsh tone with the judge in a pretrial hearing. He was charged with contempt of court. And so Walt Britt told Mike, we're going to focus our investigative efforts on J.P. Morgan. And they did. Britt's private investigator, Dennis Miller, was on a mission to find out everything he could about Emma Jean Thompson's murder. The alleged drug trafficking within Gwinnett County police ranks, J.P. Morgan, and Michael Thompson. Anything that might help Chapel's case. But it was the tip that Morgan might actually be the architect of a setup against Chapel that piqued his interest most. 
they would soon come to learn that the supposedly privileged client-attorney conversation between Chapel and Britt wasn't private at all. That conversation, according to Danny Porter, even though it was supposed to be an off-the-record privileged conversation, not heard by anybody but Mike Chapel or Walt Britt, that conversation triggered the investigation into J.P. Morgan, which started around that time, May 8th, 9th. Dennis Miller scoured the town for months, talking to witnesses and looking for a link between J.P. Morgan and Emma Jean Thompson's murder. Though the biggest break in their investigation would come from a very random phone call. Wintertime of 1993, I think it was December. Yeah, it was December because it was across from a Christmas tree stand. Walt Britt received a phone call from an employee of the American Inn. The American Inn was a small, seedy, two-star motel in Buford that was a known hangout for drug dealers selling their product and prostitutes meeting their johns. It was a place frequented by Michael Thompson. This hotel employee contacted Walt Britt and basically told Walt Britt, hey, I found this gun. It's a 38 snub nose. I, I picked it up with a stick. It was in the mud behind our dumpster. I picked it up with a stick, and you could see two bullets missing from the chambers. The 38 caliber snub nose revolver used to kill Emma Jean Thompson still had not been recovered by police, a fact that was reported many times on local news. So this gun is right away matching the description of the gun that was suspected to have killed Emma Jean Thompson. And he tells Walt Britt that I took it into the office, showed it to Dolores, the manager. Dolores, the manager, called Gwinnett County Police Department. The first officer showed up, looked at it, walked outside, called somebody else. Another officer, an older officer, uh, showed up. They stood outside our office and talked for about 10 minutes. And then the first officer walked in, picked up the gun in the bag, walked out to his patrol car with several people watching, opened the trunk of his patrol car and dropped the gun into his patrol car and then reached in and swooped it up with a rag and wiped it clean. In front of these witnesses, just wiped it down, put it back in the bag, dropped it back in his trunk, got in his car and left. Walt Britt, as you can imagine, is going, what? <laughs> and so he sends his investigator, Dennis Miller, who goes, talks to whatever other employees uh, witnessed this. They also told Dennis Miller that Michael Thompson, the victim's son, had stayed in the room next to the dumpster, 50 feet away from where the gun was found, four days prior to the gun being found, and that that's the room that he always stayed in, and he had stayed there many times right after the murder and up to that point. All of the information Henry just relayed comes from a report investigator Dennis Miller created. Statements from eyewitnesses, police logs, and testimony. I also confirmed with Michael Thompson when we spoke that he had stayed numerous times at the American Inn, though he wasn't clear on exactly why he frequented a motel not far from his home. Did you ever go to the American Inn? I have. I did go to the American Room American Inn several times and rented rooms myself 
and friends never rent a room for someone else or per se anything like that. No. So yeah, but so you went there and got a room. Yeah. So Dennis Miller says, "Hey, we need to we need to look at this gun. We need to see this gun." Dennis Miller also talked to his sources within the police department and reports back to Walt Britt, "Hey, yeah, they found this gun. Like there's some smoke here. We need to, you know, we need to look at this gun and this gun needs to be tested." So Walt Britt starts sending letters to Danny Porter asking for any guns that had been found in Gwinnett County and gave him like a six month date range or whatever. You know, he was being very uh, ambiguous because he didn't want to come out and say this gun. He just wanted to give Danny Porter the opportunity to produce any guns that had been found. Nothing. So then he gets a little more specific, date range, geographic location, nothing. Then he says, I want the gun y'all found at the American Inn. And Danny Porter had to acknowledge that in fact, they had found a gun. I actually have seen the property report where Officer Plunkett turned the gun in. I've got his log where he logged himself at the American Inn when that call occurred. Um, so we know for a fact that they retrieved this gun from the American Inn we know for a fact that it was a 38, that it was missing two bullets, and that GCPD wiped it down. But then Danny Porter says, well, we did find the gun, but I can't produce it for defense examination because, well, GCPD destroyed it. 12 days after obtaining the gun, they placed it in an incinerator and melted it, destroying the evidence for all time. There is evidence the gun was destroyed after 12 days because it was testified to at trial by Gwinnett County Police. And a statement was made that it was not typical protocol. John Laddie and another more recently member of the district attorney's office basically said that the gun had no evidentiary value because it was found in mud. If the gun found at the American Inn was used to kill Emma Jean Thompson, all potential forensic or ballistic evidence, touch DNA on the trigger, fingerprints on the spent shells or the remaining bullets, unique markings created inside the barrel when it was fired, all lost when it was melted down. On May 10th, 1993, J.P. Morgan received a call at home from Jim Ash while having dinner with his family. Remember, Jim Ash was the commander of the Hall County Jail, where Chapel was held immediately following his arrest. Just days before Morgan received that call, attorney Walt Britt had relayed to Chapel that a confidential informant of his told him that Morgan was setting Chapel up to take the fall for Imogene Thompson's murder. Shortly after that supposedly private conversation took place, an investigation into Morgan had begun. And shortly after that call, he left his dinner table with his family, went upstairs into his office, typed something out on his computer, and shot himself in the head with his 40 caliber service weapon. The medical examiner notes that they also found a 38 caliber revolver on his nightstand, whereabouts unknown. 
That gun was never tested, and nobody knows where that gun is. If J.P. Morgan was in fact involved somehow, could this explain why so many eyewitnesses saw a cop at the scene of the murder? Could it have been Morgan and not Chapel? Immediately after being identified as a subject of the investigation, which was the investigation into the death of Imogene Thompson, J.P. Morgan decided to kill himself. In the Land of Lies is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and performed the original music score. Story editor is Jason Hoke, and executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Creative producer is Henry Ball, and you can find Henry's book, Michael Chapel, at storiedpress.store. For updates about this and all of my podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kipe. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review. And as always, thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.